0: The Bible says, and this is Psalm 111, verses 2 through 4, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So in that psalm, There's established the fact that the works of the Lord are great and that those who study them delight in them. As they see the work of the Lord, they they rejoice in it. And that they're full of splendor and that he causes those works to be remembered. And he causes them to be sealed into the hearts of his people and really of the whole world. Now, our forefathers and mothers were very... Careful to do this regarding the founding of the United States of America. They saw and they recognized God's grace in that work, and they documented it for future generations. In fact, they did so very carefully. Now, in recent years, that whole concept has been downplayed, it's been criticized, and it's even been dismissed as little more than an offering of insincere platitudes or sentimental superstitions or the voice of unsophisticated or uneducated minds that were not really developed yet uh, into the superior thinking of the age of reason, that uh, these were simple people with simple ideas and so they expressed things simply and just hadn't really gotten to where we are today. The arrogance and the ignorance of such opinions is astounding. It really is. Um, You're talking here about men who, when they graduated from college, had to answer their questions in Latin. Any question that might come from their professor, they had to respond in Latin. Ignorant and simple folks, it's uh, hard to put those two things together, isn't it? Um, There's just an arrogance of our day that is shameful, really. Um, You hear sometimes uh, people being interviewed, and they can't even tell you who the first president of the United States was. But at the same time, they believe that the first president of the United States was probably basically a simple and ignorant man, which is unbelievable, but it happens. George Washington wrote in 1778 this, The hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all of this, the founding of our nation, that he must be worse than an infidel or an unbeliever that lacks faith and more than wicked, that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations, to give thanks to the Lord and to acknowledge his hand in the founding of the nation. Worse Mm -hmm. than an infidel. But, Washington says, actually wicked, if they will not recognize that hand. The obligations were to God. What God? Krishna? The God of the Hindus? No, of course not. He referred to the triune God of the Bible. And attempts to suggest otherwise are just simply dishonest. George Washington saw the work of God not just in general terms, but as it related to specific events. You take, for example, the betrayal by Benedict Arnold of the United States. In a letter to a fellow officer about that incident, Washington said this, In no instance since the commencement of the war has the interposition of Providence appeared more conspicuous than in the rescue of the post and garrison of West Point from Art Arnold's villainous perfidy. So he says, nothing has been given more evidence of the hand of divine providence than exposing that plan. The general was far from alone in that assessment. The Continental Congress, we're told, attributed the discovery of Arnold's treason to, quote, Almighty God, the Father of all mercies. They didn't say it was just a matter of coincidence or a matter of happenstance. They declared clearly that Almighty God, the Father of all mercies, exposed this and saved the nation. They further, quote, recommended to the several states to set apart Thursday the seventh day of December next to be observed as a day of public thanksgiving and prayer adding that the people should praise and thank God ask him to pardon their sins and to smile upon their endeavors petition him for peace and blessings and lastly to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over all the earth that's the Congress of the United States In its early formation, making a declaration that there should be be a day of prayer and thanksgiving and acknowledging our dependence upon God for all those things. Pardon for sin, that he would look upon what was going on and, and show favor. And then ask him for peace and blessing, which can only come from him. And then lastly, to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over the whole earth. After the defeat at Yorktown... (coughs) The British Parliament acted to clear the way for King George III to make peace with the United States. And in 1782, a provisional treaty uh, was signed known as the Treaty of Paris. I'm sure many of you have heard of that. Um, It's not a a foreign term to you. You know that that was how the peace with the Great Britain and the United States was established through this Treaty of Paris. It was signed on the behalf of the United States by Benjamin Franklin, uh, John Adams, and John Jay, who became the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. In September of 1783, that treaty was ratified, and the independence of the United States was officially acknowledged by Great Britain. Now, though the Treaty of Paris marks the end of our war for independence, My suspicion is that many Americans don't have the slightest idea what it says or what's in it. It, Maybe you read it sometime in school at some point, but that was probably a long time ago. Maybe some of the students among us are having to read it, but you're probably not aware very much of what that treaty says. Well, this official document that establishes our right to be a free nation begins with this acknowledgment. In the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity, it having pleased the divine providence to dispose the hearts of the most serene and most potent Prince George the by the grace of God, King of Britain, France, and Ireland, Defender of the Faith, and so on and the United States of America to forget all past misunderstandings and differences that have unhappily interrupted the good correspondence and friendship which they mutually wish to restore, and it goes on from there. But what I want you to notice is how it begins. I just want to make two quick observations there before we turn to the Word of God. The first one is this, that some would suggest that this was just the common language of the times. It doesn't allow, even if that's true, for the dismissal that so often follows that statement. Oh, It doesn't mean anything that it says in the name of the Most High and Undivided Trinity. That doesn't mean anything, because that's just the way you start treaties. No, that's not the normal way of starting a treaty. Not every treaty at this time started with those terms. And secondly, even if it is so, the most natural question is, well, why was it so? Why was that the natural way to start something like this? What was the thinking behind it? Why did did they do that? And, of course, an honest answer would be, because in general terms, it was believed that God did rule over all the nations. And that's why they started the treaty that way. And that's why they started documents like this in those terms. They believe Psalm 22:28, which says, "For kingship belongs to the Lord, He rules over the nations." And the fact that some men and women today reject that doesn't in itself render it an illegitimate belief. It doesn't. Just because somebody doesn't believe that today doesn't mean, well, that was illegitimate back then. It was an improper belief because I don't believe it. That that doesn't have any impact on it at all. Um, It's just a matter of whether it's true or not. And as the word of God, we believe it's true. Secondly, these words in no way allow for the view that deism was the religion of the day. Nothing about that opening statement to the treaty suggests a deistic view of God. The two things it says about God are actually contrary to a deistic doctrine. First of all, it refers to the triune God of the Bible, which deists reject. And secondly, it speaks of a God whose overruling providence moved in the heart of the king and the people of the United States to come to peace together. So you don't have a God who just wound up the world and threw it out there and lets all the events unfold as they're going to unfold, like the deist believes. But you have a God who's intimately involved, working in the heart of the king, working in the heart of the citizens of the United States, and bringing them to a place where they can have peace together. And acknowledgement and admission of that reality. It is not the position of the word of God that it would be nice if men and women would acknowledge the goodness of God in matters both personal and national, or even global or universal. It's not just a nice idea, beloved. It is a matter of propriety, truth, and righteousness. When you turn back to Psalm 33, you find This in verses 10 and 15. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men or man. From where he sits enthroned, the Lord looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The first thing that we notice is that the counsel of the Lord stands. In verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. But then in verse 11, the psalm says, The counsel of the Lord, in contrast, stands forever. The plans of his heart's heart to all generations. Now just before those words, in verse 10... Up in verse 8, it says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe or be frightened of him. We've talked before about how this word awe, I think it's poorly placed. Um, Steve kind of made reference to it when he said that that first hymn was my choosing because it's God the (laughs) all-terrible. Those words have been changed in some hymn books because that makes people uncomfortable. But God is a terror to the wicked. And he is someone to be frightened of if you have not made peace with him through Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says that if the nations won't praise him, then let them at least fear fear him. If they refuse to to praise him and give glory to him and acknowledge him as God, let them at least then be in fear of him. And he adds, a defiant blasphemer is out of place in a world covered with tokens of the divine power and Godhead. The whole earth cannot afford a spot congenial for the erection of a synagogue of atheism. For the erection of a synagogue of atheism, nor a man in whom it is becoming to profane the name of God. And I love the way he says that. There's no place on earth where you can go and say, oh, this is a good place. God's glory, God's beauty, God's wisdom, God's goodness isn't displayed here. So let's build a synagogue here and make it a synagogue to atheism. There isn't such place. And why shouldn't the nations worship him? And if not, why shouldn't they fear him? Why should they be afraid of him? Well, Let me draw a picture for you. A little child is uh, playing in the shade of a tree when he or she notices a menacing-looking, big, ugly bug approaching. And this is just a little child. And one that looks like it might sting or it might bite. And the child cries out, and Dad walks over, and he looks at that bug, and he goes, and that's the end. He crushes the bug under his foot. He just steps on He doesn't even have to really stomp on it. He just walks over and goes, oh, a bug. And that's the end of the bug. All right? Now, the reason I give that illustration is because that's really the picture that's given to us here. The nations of men. They plan, they plot, they hold meetings and symposiums, they Zoom, and they, uh, they FaceTime, and uh, they generate reports. They make elaborate plans, sometimes negatively, to subvert justice and to cover up their, their criminal behavior or hide their mismanagement and their malfeasance And God's people cry out for truth and justice, and the Lord, like that father, comes over at their plots and goes, and that's the end of them. That's what this psalm says. That's literally what it says. The Lord crushes the plots and the plans of the nations. So here they are. They're great. They're powerful. They seem to have all the the force on their side, and he just comes over and crushes it. Nowhere is this more evident than in the cases where rulers and governments have determined to mount opposition against God and His Word. They've tried so hard, they've come up with such intricate plots, they've burned people, they've imprisoned people, they've burned books, they've tried to outlaw the gospel, but it never works. The Lord just comes along and stomps that plan out, and the Word spreads, the gospel spreads, people are saved. Where attempts have been made against Christ and his cross, the state, the world, man has failed again and again. And it says here men and women devise things. That is, they imagine, they invent, and they design things. So let me illustrate that for you. Think of a woman who carefully begins to braid her hair, or she's braiding the hair of one of her children. And she gets three or four strands and and begins uh, weaving them into that intricate weave that's going to be in the hair and gets all done and then gets a hair band to put on the end to hold the braid in place so it doesn't come apart. And a little one of the children comes up, younger children comes up and grabs the end of that carefully braided hair and pulls the hair band off. And all... The careful braiding and time spent is lost because the hair just all falls apart and out of the braid that's what the picture we have here of the Lord it is, it's just like this with the Lord and the intricate plans of men and women and nations they go to all the, time, all the time put all this together and get it just the way it ought to be and then the Lord just pulls the end off of it and it all comes apart and comes to nothing becomes vanity. They plan, he frustrates. That's what this verse says. They plan, he frustrates. The cause of God is never in danger. Infernal craft is outwitted by infinite wisdom. And satanic malice held in check by boundless power, says Spurgeon. And while the plans of men and nations are crushed and unraveled by him and his ever-wise and good providence... The counsel of the Lord, on the other hand, stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So his counsel and plans are firmly planted, appointed, and and they're established forever. Nothing in heaven, earth, or hell can thwart or change or escape his purpose and his design. And in stark contrast to the intricate and carefully plotted plans of men and women, his plans serve all generations. Do you call what the Congress called for when it established that day of Thanksgiving. Do you, do you remember what they said? They said they wanted, um, and it was the prayer they were offering on the occasion of the exposure of Arnold's treason. Let me read it to you again: that the people should praise and thank God, ask Him to pardon their sins and to smile upon their endeavors, petition Him for peace and blessings. And to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over all the earth. That last request of the Lord, that they said we should pray for as a nation, that he would cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread all over the earth, was one of the specifically stated reasons why the pilgrims came here in the first place. It was for the purpose of spreading the gospel and that was 150 years before this Congress met. and this nation has enjoyed a reign of the gospel like no other in history and this nation has been responsible for export- ex- exporting the knowledge of christianity to the world like no other nation in history More money has been spent, more energy, more time, more people have gone forth from here to spread the gospel than any other nation in history. Is that an answer to the prayers of the pilgrims and the Congress? I think it is. And here is this God who established the nation, and his plan was that that should be. The story of this nation and it turns out it is the story of this nation his plan to bless and use us started before we were a nation and it continues down to this generation and it will continue to do so according to his will and that's the matter according to his will his people are a blessed nation Blessed, verse 20, verse 12 says, is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And sometimes this blessed nation is considered a reference to the nation of Israel. Um, but the problem is that uh, the whole word or the word that's used here for nation is used to differentiate, to differentiate the Gentiles from the Israelites, the Gentile nations from his people Israel. So it's a little hard to make that adjustment here. Other times, this word or this statement is viewed as any Gentile nation that embraces the God of Israel, that if they show favor to Israel, they'll be blessed. And some see it as referring to the church as the kingdom of believers among all the nations of the world, and that they are the ones who have the promise of this blessing. John Gill says this, Puritan, This nation is the chosen generation, the holy nation a peculiar people, both among Jews and Gentiles, And the Lord is the God of these, not only as the God of nature and providence, but as the God of all grace. I think we can certainly safely say that the nation of Israel was blessed and that any nation that should embrace the God of true Israel will be blessed too. And that truly, I think we can say, that the Church of Christ called out of every tribe and tongue and nation, is blessed. So I think we can take this more generally than sometimes it's taken. But notice the dispersion says, it all comes down to election. Election is at the bottom of it all, he says. The divine choice rules the day. None take Jehovah to be their God till he takes them to be his people. Now in verse fourteen and fifteen it says he looks down from heaven where he's enthroned. And this rule of the Lord over the nations is neither a blind, beloved, nor an arbitrary one. From his lofty vantage point, he sees his own and all their trials and all their blessings and in all their private as well as their public moments, and he's always ready to protect and to encourage and to correct them in love. That's, that's the character of, of God. He also sees all men and women, rich and poor, famous and infamous, troubled and and dangerously at ease, wicked and foolish. All are fully on display before him. And he observes their deeds. That is, he sees and he understands what they're doing. He understands where those deeds arise from and what is the intention behind them. Spurgeon again says, this consideration foretokens a judgment judgment when the results of the divine thoughts will be meted out in measures of happiness or woe. Consider your ways, O man, for God considers them. And he fashions the heart of all men and women. You might know, recall King David's plaintive cry in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba and his repentance. He says there in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And there's this example, which is referenced by Peter during the debate of the elders uh, at the um, Jerusalem conference. In Acts chapter 15, verse 7, we read, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart of or witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He knew the heart. He changed the heart. That's what God does. He looks out over all the inhabitants of the earth. He looks on the hearts of men. And then he fashions their hearts according to his will. So just some concluding thoughts here, briefly. First of all, in regard to the founders, the Lord is the only reliable judge of their hearts and motives. When we read of them assigning things, assigning glory to God for things that took place in their time, when we read of their confession of faith and their witness for the Lord Jesus Christ and their dependence upon God and his word, the Lord is the only reliable judge of those comments and statements, not succeeding generations who sit back and, because they don't believe, declare them to be somehow disingenuous or insincere. They're not in a place to judge. God is their judge. In Proverbs sixteen nine, we read, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So, what were they intending to do? What did they say was was their their burden? Well, it was to create a country where there would be freedom, where the gospel could be spread to every nation. Well, what happened? Did they end up creating a country in which there was such freedom that the gospel could be spread to every nation? Yes, that happened. So, that was the intent of their heart, and God heard and answered that intent. What became of their plans? Well, they came to fruition. Now we turn to their children. He's the only reliable judge of their hearts and motives as well. The hearts and motives of their children, of this generation. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So our forefathers sought to establish a nation in which by its freedom, the gospel might spread to the whole world. And now their children are trying to establish a nation in which there is the freedom for every kind of sin and perversion. And what is the continuing result? You find the blessing of the nation under that determination and you find the deterioration of the nation as the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I want to close with the words of one of those founding fathers, President John Adams. He's the same one who signed that treaty. Adams said this in a proclamation that he made as president in 1798. As the safety and prosperity of nations ultimately and essentially depends on the protection and the blessing of almighty God. And the national acknowledgement of this truth is not only an indispensable duty which the people owe to him. But a duty whose natural influence is favorable to the promotion of that morality and piety without which social happiness cannot exist nor the blessings of a free government be enjoyed. And as this duty at all times incumbent is so especially fit, uh, so especially in seasons of difficulty or of danger, when existing or threatening calamities, the just judgments of God against prevalent iniquity are a loud call to repentance and reformation. And as the United States of America are, at present placed in a hazardous and afflictive situation under these considerations it has appeared to me that the duty of imploring the mercy and benediction of heaven on our country demands at this time a special attention from its inhabitants what a powerful statement he acknowledges first that the safety the welfare of the nation depends upon god And then he talks about how it's the duty of God's people to acknowledge that and to thank him for what he's done. If they fail in that duty, morality and piety fail. And he says that where the free government is enjoyed, it's the duty of all, especially in times of difficulty and danger, to call upon the Lord and to consider their sins and to repent. And he thought that this time was just such a time. That is his time. And I think it's just such a time for us as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word here, for the confidence and encouragement we get from that word. And we pray, Lord, that as we enter into the celebration of our national birthday, that, Lord, first we'll acknowledge your hand in the founding of this nation and not be ashamed of it, but join our forefathers in acknowledging it. And then, Lord, that we would also acknowledge where we are and what we need. This is a day of calamity in some regards and affliction. And Lord, we need to humbly come into your presence, I ask you to have mercy on our nation, to relieve us from these things, and I ask you, Lord, to spread the gospel with new power and vigor among this land. Lord, may revival begin with us and spread throughout. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.